Blog Talk Radio. King Wave, Fox, Beer, Lock is action, very weird. Captain Pike, Crystal's wife, Klingons, and the afterlife. Boimler, Tendy's dog, Ransom is very harsh. Four drive, Black Alert, Giorgio has gone berserk. Teacher, bad left, Edward is an idiot, Fuck is dead, Wolf is wed, Chekhov's wearing red. Peter's cat, Kempak's cat, Q has had enough of that, beam me up, make it so, everybody let's go. We are Trekkies around the globe, but that song is time for another episode of Trek Talking, and boy, do we have a busy, busy show for you, but it's going to be a great one. We are going to talk about Star Trek, the motion picture tonight, and I know we've talked about it in the past, but it's such a, a you know, an instrumental movie that it demands more than one show, so we're going to tackle it again tonight, and we're going to have a lot of fun because we're going to be hearing from Tom Morga who was actually in Star Trek, the motion picture. He's going to be calling a little bit later. So if you have some questions for Tom, please give us a call. Our phone number, as always, is 646-668-2433. That's 646-668-2433. You should have us in speed dial, actually. And you're going to want to keep that number handy because on July 22nd, we have five copies of Star Trek Discovery Season 3 to give away to you guys for free. You can win it before you can buy it. It doesn't come out until July 29th, but we have five copies to give away on the 22nd. And Jeremy Roberts, who played Dimitri Beltane in Star Trek VI and Star Trek Voyager Flashback, is going to be with us live on that show. So you can call, you can talk to Jeremy Roberts, and win a copy of Star Trek Discovery Season 3. But wait, there's more, because Andy Chekhov-Bray is also going to be with us on that show, checking in with Chekhov. So mark your calendars for July 22nd, put us on speed dial, call and talk to Jeremy Roberts, and win a copy of Star Trek Discovery 3 on DVD before you can buy it. 646-668-2433 is that number, so please... Keep it handy and give us a call on July 22nd. Anyways, back to the show. I'm your host, Uncle Jim, and with me as usual are my truck spurts. We'll start off with Eric. He's out in Portland. How are you doing tonight, Eric? I'm doing really well, Jim. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's another beautiful day in Portland. We're in the 70s, and it's kind of sunny and a little breezy here, so the weather is cooperating. And, uh, and yeah, I'm just kind of excited to talk about this movie again i feel like every time i see it i i see just a little bit more so gonna be a good show yeah it it's a great movie and i think it's overlooked a lot um just like when we talked about star trek 5 last week as well we also have with us charles charles is out in las vegas a city that i'm going to be visiting for the first time uh for star trek Las. Ve- i'm sorry for star trek the 55 year mission in las vegas how you doing tonight charles I'm doing good. 
another week, another heat advisory. So it's only about 113 today. Well, you know what's funny, Charles? It'll get back to back to low hundreds, hopefully next week. Last week we had record high here in Vermont. It, it, it was 95, 98 for three days in a row. Then we had record lows where it dipped down into the 50s. Now we're down in the 60s with rain. It's been raining now for a week. I, I don't know what's going on. But um, anyways, that's what's going on up here in yeah, Vermont. But wait, guys, we also have with us the one, the only from Stunt Treks, which is on temporary hiatus. While I'm up at camp, I just can't do the podcast and be at camp. It's just so we're taking a little break, but we have with us the one and only Leslie Hoffman. How you doing tonight, Leslie? Oh, I'm doing okay. Um, I don't think we had the record highs that you're talking about, but boy, we did have the rain that you were talking about. Oh my God! It, it, and it, it just never seems to stop, does it? <laughs> huh. no, was, we were getting the rain. <laughs> Lots of rain. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I mean, you have no idea what the weather's going to be up here until you look out the window in the morning or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. So, listen, guys, as I said, we're going to be talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, we're also going to be talking about Simon Peggy's working on a new project. You might be interested in hearing about this one. Hallmark has a new exclusive ornament coming out at Comic-Con, something near and dear to my heart. And we have another episode of Shatner Says What? We have fan shout-outs, Star Trek birthdays, and a whole lot of fun. Once again, the phone number here is 646-668-2433. Please give us a call and join the fun. So, I just want to say that we have 55,766 followers on Facebook. Thank you very much for joining our family. And please head over to blogtalkradio.com backslash trektalking. Give us a like, give us a follow so you never miss a show. And Eric, speaking of our numbers, what's going on around the globe? Well, Jim, I sort of knew that last week was an anomaly, and sure enough, the numbers have bounced back this week. So, uh we have so many international listeners at this point that less than three quarters of our listeners now come from the United States, only about 73%. And that number used to be right around 76, 77%. So more and more international listeners join in our team every single week. And who's in the front place? Of course, it's the UK setting another record. 6.36% of our listeners come from the United Kingdom Wow, they just keep doing it over and over again. Thank you, guys. I, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, every week it's a new record, and uh, we just really love everyone listening to us in the U.K. So we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, in that number two spot, though, not to be outdone and surging, surging like crazy, Canada, our brothers and sisters to the north, forming 5.89% of our listeners. That has shot up like a rocket over the last couple of weeks. I think Chris maybe is going out and doing some evangelizing or something. I don't know. Canada all of a sudden is listening to us again. So thank you, folks from Canada. In our number three international spot, we have Australia with 4.17% of our listeners up, of course, again since last week. 1.85% of our listeners come from Ireland. So you combine Ireland and the UK, and that is upwards of more than 8% of our listeners just from that area of the world. So 
Thank you so much, folks from Ireland. And finally, in our number five spot, just holding steady, we've got Norway, our brothers and sisters from Scandinavia, 1.75% of our listeners. So thank you to every one of our listeners, both international and domestic. We appreciate each and every one of you every single week, don't we, Jim? Absolutely. And we couldn't do the show without you guys. But wait, there's more. We also do a little segment with our top cities. We like to know where you're listening geographically, not only by country, but we'd like to narrow that down just a little bit more. And for that, we turn to Charles. So, Charles, what are our top cities this week? Well, in our three of our hosts and fan locations, Indianapolis, near where Shannon lives, dropped down to 37. Portland, see, she went up one spot, lost a spot. Portland went down a spot. Eric's getting a couple more fans over there. They're now at 23. And Las Vegas is stable at 19. So we, when, when we get to top 10, Jim said he thought there might be some rumblings in the top, in the top numbers. And there were some rumblings in the top numbers. Santiago, Brazil. Hello. Santiago, Brazil, stayed at 10. But San Antonio, Texas dropped to 9th, where they used to be stable at 8. Why did they lose their fame? Queensland, Australia is now in 8th. They were used to be fighting for ninth and tenth, but they're now in eighth place. So we're getting a lot of battles up there in the top, in the, top the eighth, ninth, and tenth. And then the rest of our numbers are pretty stable. Chicago, Illinois at seventh. Toronto, Ontario, Canada at sixth. The home of Andy Bray in Los Angeles is in fifth. Melbourne, Victoria, Australia in fourth. Sydney, New South Wales, Australian third, London, UK, still in second, and of course our top city, New York. Yep, those are our top cities. So now that we know the countries, we know the cities, but wait, there's more. We also like to give individual fan out shouts to you guys listening at home or right now, wherever you're listening around the globe. If you check our Facebook page, you'll see the Live Long and Prosper symbol. If you see a heart next to your name from Truck Talk, and that means yours truly, Uncle Jim, has picked your name, and you're going to be on a future fan shout-out. So, Eric, let's give our fan shout-outs for the week. Who's on your list? Well, our number one fan shout-out this week goes to top fan David Ord, who is one of those international listeners hailing from the U.K. He says he comes from the U.K., in a town called where? And I sort of looked that up, and it's uh, looks like it's just a little north of London, between London and Cambridge. So thank you, David, for listening to us uh, all the way from the U.K. Maybe, maybe you're the reason that number keeps going up every single week. If you are, thank you so much. We're also saying hello this week to top fan Paolo Puccini from Roma, Italy, but living in Dubai. So a lot of folks doing business uh, throughout the world. Paolo, thank you so much for listening to us. Siggy Slock from Belgium lives near Brussels and gives us a live long and prosper hand. Thank you, Siggy, for listening to us as well. We've got Dan Wahlberg from Karuna, Sweden. 
250 kilometers above the Arctic Circle. That's right, folks. We have people above the Arctic Circle who listen to this podcast. How much more reach on the planet can you get? That's so cool. <laughs> David Walberg, or Dan Walberg, excuse me. Thank you so much for listening to us. Why is it colder than Leslie? Oh, my gosh. It's got to be, right? That's has got to be colder than Leslie. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and my final fan shout-out this week goes out to Janet Fry, who's in Yuba City in Northern California. So not that far from my home state of Oregon. Charles, who do you have on your list this week? Well, let's start off with Diana Stack from Langley, Washington. Top fan Scott Nicolette, born in Southern Thunder Bay, Canada, living in Edmonton. There's Jason Weeks, who lives in Queensland, Australia, one of our top cities. Ruth and Ruth Mall from Allentown, Pennsylvania, in the United States. And I wonder where Jim's heading to. Well, we'd like to say hello and thank you to Stephen McClucky from Glasgow, Scotland. That's where my grandmother comes from, Glasgow, Scotland. So thank you for listening. And we want to say hello to Philip. 90 seconds for what? What's going on here? <laughs> oh, no, not again. Uh, uh, guys, why does this keep happening? What's going about, on, Jim? Well, we're about to get disconnected again. Huh. I don't get this. I don't Live get radio. this at all. Live radio, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to... Nope, we're going to get disconnected here. I'm going to... I don't... Uh... You rearrange those and it reset the time. Yep, it did. I'm going to see if I'm going to try to save it before we go off. If not, I'm going to have to come back on again. Come on. No, we're not going to. Yep, and it's about to be dead here unless I can change it. Unless I can change it. I don't know why this is doing this. Uh, it's not going to let me do it. Ugh. I can't get on in time to do it, guys. We're going to have to come right back. No, I can't do it before. It's going to cut us off. Ugh. Yep, there we go. All right, guys, we're going to have to we're going to have to come back on in a minute here. I'm going to have to redo the show. We're about to lose it. I'm trying to save it, but I, I can't. She's dead. All right. We'll see you soon. She's dead. She's dead, Jen. We'll be right back, guys. Hold on. Oh, man. All right. I'm trying to do this here, guys. Bear with me. I'm trying to uh, do this on the fly, and I don't think it's going to let me. No, it's not. 
Okay, we're gonna have to come back, guys. Can you? Are you guys still there? Yeah, I'm seeing a little bit. All right, so listen, we're gonna we're going to pick this up. Uh, what what is it? Seven forty-six. We're gonna pick this up at eight o'clock. All right, we can stay on the line are we here. Start over or? Nope, we're gonna pick up right where we left off. Um, yeah, right where we left off. I'm going to uh, get the move everything over. This is live radio, guys. I'm going to move everything over to the um, to a new a new show, and we'll just we'll just keep right on going. All right. All right. Well, so anyway, in for the recording though, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll have to. So let's let's do our let's do our birthdays, Eric, while I get the other the next show was set up. Are we still recording? We know we are. Yep, we're yep, we're recording right now. Yep. All righty. Well, let's head to our birthdays then. Uh, we always start the show, the birthday uh, part of the show, with folks who uh, have gone before us and are no longer with us that are from our Star Trek community. So our first remembrance this week goes out to actor Ward Costello, who played Admiral Quinn in the Next Generation episodes Coming of Age and Conspiracy. Uh, you would recognize him. He's a blue-eyed, gray-haired gentleman who had kind of a, I don't know, what I think some people forget uh, of as a admiral uniform, kind of an interesting one with sort of a black stripe that went across the front. So happy birthday to Ward Costello. We're also sending happy birthday and sending our remembrances out to Hal Sutherland, who was the producer for the uh, animated series. Uh, he actually directed 16, all 16 episodes of the animated series and uh, in season one and was a producer. So uh, that's pretty cool. Um, so happy birthday to Hal Sutherland. We're also saying happy birthday and sending our remembrances out to William Meter, who played Captain Lindstrom in the TOS episode uh, Court Martial, uh, one of my personal favorite TOS episodes. He was uh, one of the sort of inquisitors uh, against Kirk in that episode, pretty recognizable. So happy birthday, William Meter. We're also celebrating the birthday of Brock Peters this week. Uh, he played Admiral Cartwright in Star Trek IV and Star Trek VI. He also played uh, Joe Sisko, the dad, the grandpa, uh, in DS9. I have to say, he is definitely a great actor. I loved him in both those roles. I did not expect him to turn out to be, spoiler alert, in League with the folks trying to sabotage the peace talks between the Federation and the Klingon Empire in Star Trek VI. Ah! But he did such a great job uh, because he's such a great actor. So happy birthday, and we miss you, Brock Peters. And our final remembrance this week goes out to William Schallert, who played the character Nils Barris in the TOS episode Trouble with Tribbles, um, undersecretary in charge of uh, Space Station K-7 there. So uh, also an actor that you saw probably in a lot of different things throughout the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. Um, very recognizable. So uh, happy birthday and remembrances going out to William Shallert. So that is the list of folks who have gone before us from our Star Trek community who would have had birthdays this week. Charles, would you like to continue with uh, folks who are still with us that are having birthdays this week? Yep. We haven't heard from our captain yet. Uh, let's start off with Tim Darby, who played Mira in U.S. episode Mira. Catherine Moffat, who played 
the Ken Joel in the TNG episode The Game. Earl's filling uh, with Admiral Henry in the TNG episode Drumhead. Then we've got Robert Neffler, who played Wyatt Miller in Haven. And I got a couple of people, a few people here, been many places. Starting off with Bruce French, who played the Ocampan Doctor and Voyager's Caretaker, the, Vol- the Vulcan Elder and Enterprise, and Endora- the Endorian Incident. Sons and officer, uh, and sons officer in Star Trek Insurrection. Kurt Smith played the Federation president in Star Trek VI. Anorak in Voyager's Year of Hell 1 and 2. And Thorax in DS9 Things. Lori Taylor played Dr. Riley Fraser in Voyager's Unity. Robert Iotes played Kang in TNG's Coming of Age. Played John Kim in Voyager's Author Author and was also Kim's father. Peggy Miley played Regent Cruzar in Star Trek Insurrection. And I remember talking about this birthday last year. Billy Campbell, who played Thaddeus O'Connor in the TNT episode, The Outrageous O'Connor. And you know, Charles... Back if we if we back up to Kurtwood okay. Smith, I he's one of those guys who has been in so many shows of Star Trek, you know, playing such big roles like the President and Anorax and Thrax and all those guys. But of course, everybody will first probably remember him from way back in the day, 1987's RoboCop. He was the bad guy. So if you can't remember That's right. who he is, just think about RoboCop. That's right. That's right. He was he was the bad guy in RoboCop. Anyways, we're going to continue on with our Star Trek birthdays, and we'd like to say happy birthday to Don Stark, who played Nicky the Nose in Star Trek First Contact. You guys remember him, huh? Nicky the oh, Nose. Oh, sure. Yep, for uh, sure. Yep, he was pretty cool. I'd also like a happy birthday to Marnie McFowl, who played Lieutenant Iger in Star Trek First Contact, and Alicia in Voyager Innocence. She's the one that went up the ladder and she yelled, Paul, and then she got assimilated. So happy birthday. And we'd also like to say happy birthday to Dennis McCarthy, who was the composer for Generations, Enterprise, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and TNG. As you know, music is so important to Star Trek. And happy birthday to Dennis McCarthy, one of the members who brings Star Trek to life through music. Happy birthday to Dennis. We'd also like to say happy birthday to Sal Rubinek, who played Kivas Fajo in the TNG episode, the most toys. Happy birthday to Saul. 
We'd also like to say happy birthday to Don Arman, who played Miss Gladstone in the TNG episode, The Child. That's the one where um, we see, we meet uh, Dr. Pulaski for the first time. So um, happy birthday to Don. This next one's very interesting. Um, We'd like to say happy birthday to Von Armstrong, who's most known for playing Admiral Maxwell Forrest on Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, He played him a total of six times, if you include the um, uh, uh, Mirror Universe. But he also is in great company because he's one of only five actors to play at least seven characters that includes J.G. Hertzler and Jeffrey Combs. So he's in good company with all of his other fellow actors. We'd also like to say happy birthday to Emily Coates, who plays Kyla Detmer on Star Trek Discovery, and Glenn Hetrick, who is the creator of creature effects and makeup for Star Trek Discovery. He's the one responsible for those awesome Klingons that we saw on Star Trek Discovery. Speaking of awesome Klingons on Star Trek Discovery, we want to say happy birthday to the guy that gave us the big slip. They tried to pull one over on us, but they couldn't do it. We'd like to say a happy birthday to Shazad Latif, who played Ash Volk in Star Trek Discovery. Hopefully we'll see him again on uh, Section 31 with Michelle Yeoh. We can only hope. Happy birthday. And, and we wouldn't have Klingons without the Klingon language. And that means we have to say happy birthday to Mark Okrin, who was the creator of the Klingon language. So happy birthday to Mark Okrin, the creator of the Klingon language. And let's see, uh, for our first news story here, I want to say that Hallmark's 2021 Comic-Con exclusive Bird of Prey ornament celebrates the 35th anniversary of Star Trek IV. Hallmark announced a number of pop-minded exclusive collectibles for 2021. Star Trek's Klingon Bird of Prey Hallmark keepsake ornament is a celebration of the 35th anniversary of Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home in 1986. This metal keepsake Voyage Home ornament has HMS Bounty painted on the bottom of it. It retails for $35 with a total production of $3,750. Hallmark has released the Klingon Bird of Prey ornament before, but in plastic. And uh, the 2021 ornament is also the first to have HMS Bounty on the bottom. It will be exclusive at Comic-Con on July 23rd, 24th, and 25th, and New York Comic-Con on October 7th and 10th. They will be sold on a first-come, first-served basis starting at noon Eastern Standard Time, 9 Pacific Time, on the first day of East Convention. Allotments will be divided evenly between the two conventions, so all fans have a fair shot. Eric, what's going on in your neck of the woods? Well, I get to bring up this week what the heck is going on with Shatner. Shatner says, what? Star Trek Four. William Shatner would return on one condition and praises Quentin Tarantino. You know, it's been five years since Star Trek Beyond hit cinemas with the rebooted cast. Since then, negotiations for Chris Pine and Chris Helmsworth to star in a Star Trek Four have ended. Uh, but Quentin Tarantino's expressed interest in helming a, a film in the, in the franchise. While the latest news is that Paramount intended on releasing a mystery new Star Trek film in June 2023, one that would be penned by Discovery writer Kalinda Vasquez and would be based on an original idea. Whatever Star Trek IV turns out to be, original James T. Kirk star William Shatner exclusively revealed that he would be up for being featured in the project on one condition. He says... 
So I would be delighted to be part of Star Trek if it was something worthy. He added, if they could come up with a way of putting a character I played in a movie where it functioned as a point in the movie and made the movie move along, I'd be delighted. Asked what he thought about Quentin Tarantino's possible helming of the Star Trek movie, Shatner said, I think it's glorious. I've met with Tarantino more than once. His movies are filled with juice. It's a fresh look at these movies of heroes. I mean, he would have blood coming out of your nose. <laughs> Having the chance to feature in such a project, he added, absolutely, absolutely, he is wonderful. So there you go. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend himself would like to work with QT on a new Star Trek. Who the heck knows if it'll happen, but I'm on board if it does. Charles, that would be you cool. got this week. All right. Well, Star Trek, Simon Pegg, working on Galaxy Quest TV series. Since 1999, there have been a number of attempts to develop some kind of follow-up to Galaxy Quest. And in a new interview, Emmy-winning reveals to the UK Times she's working on a television spinoff with Simon Pegg. Latest news regarding Galaxy Quest series was one in development at Amazon, which would bring back members of the original cast. A number of writers have been attached to projects, including Paul Shear. According to Paul Shear, his version would have the original cast interacting with the new cast. A storyline, he said, was inspired by 2009 Star Trek, featuring a new cast. In March of this year, Sigourney Weaver told Collider that the project had been in Mothball in the years following the 2016 passing of Alan Rickman. However, she also indicated new activities saying, I think they are finally now reviving it. It's not clear if the current project involves Cricket and Peg is relevant to any way or to one working on by Shear or mentioned by Weaver. However, she said it was a story of an old ancient galaxy questers being brought in the series with another younger cast. Galaxy Quest star Tim Allen has also discussed reprising his role as Commander Taggart. Earlier this year, he talked EW about over the years. It's hard to say if this latest attempt will bring back Galaxy Quest will take off. However, Peg seems to be in a perfect fit for the project, and Pritchett being involved indicates this is a serious effort to never give up, never surrender. Excellent. And listen, guys, our phone number here is still 646-668-2433. We're about to talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture, but before we do that, I do have some Star Trek The Motion Picture news. Star Trek, the motion picture director's edition to be restored in 4K HDR for Paramount+. The 1979 film, Star Trek, the motion picture, is beloved by many fans, with some considering it the most cinematic of the original movie series. However, it was famously rushed to theaters, leaving director Robert Wise with a list of things he wanted to do but were left undone. But in 2001, he had the chance to create the director's edition on DVD, which Wise considered as his final cut and included new visual effects. Paramount announced they will be remastering Wise's director edition in 4K Ultra HD with Dolby Vision. 
high dynamic range along with the new Dolby Atmos soundtrack. This restored version will debut first on Paramount+. Plus. It will be released at a later date on Blu-ray and possibly other streaming services following the exclusive window on Paramount+. Plus. The restoration is expected to take up to six months. Wow. That's, that's, that's going to be incredible, actually. I think. Yeah. That sounds really so good. do that for film. Yeah, yeah it is. It. And I was wondering, you think they're going to release it as one of those, uh, you know, you, you pay, like Netflix has been doing and some of the Disney's been doing, where they, you know, you have to pay extra for a certain amount of time to watch it on their channel, or do you think they're going to actually include it with the subscription? I mean, all that remastering, you think they'd want to make some extra money off of it almost. Yeah, I, I don't know how that would work. I, it, the article says it will be on Paramount Plus first, so we'll get to see it on Paramount Plus and then other streaming services. So I don't know how they're going to work that. That'll be interesting. Have you seen any other sort of high-priced previews on CBS, or has that just been on some of the other services? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Paramount Plus. I haven't seen Paramount do it yet. Yeah, yeah. Paramount hasn't yeah. done that yet, so. All right, so let me see here uh, who we have here. One of these, I think this is this one here. Let me see. Tom, can you hear me? Uh, Yes, I have you now. Excellent. I'm sorry. I apologize for the technical difficulties that we had earlier, but um, we are live, and sometimes that happens. So, guys, I'd like to introduce to you guys Tom Morga. Tom Morga actually was in Star Trek, the motion picture. One of my favorite scenes at the very beginning, he was one of the original Klingons. The Klingons referred to as the Spineheads. He was the Klingon, uh, I guess it would be the first officer. Uh, he was the guy that was standing behind Mark Leonard and uh, put his hand on, on the back of his chair and went over to the console to fire the torpedoes. That was Tom. Tom also was the twirly guy. I don't think he actually had a name. But Tom was the twirly guy when the Enterprise launches from dry dock at the beginning of the movie. That was Tom twirling around in, in space dock. And he also was the, the uh, stand-in for uh, Mr. Spock. Did I get everything, Tom, or did, did I leave anything out? Oh, uh, you just made a slight mistake. I wasn't a stand-in. I was a stuntman, so I was a stunt oh. double for Leonard. That's it, so a stunt double Spock. for Leonard. That's right. You were Mr. Spock. That's right. That's right. Le- Leslie sent me a picture of you as Mr. Spock, which actually looks Really, really incredible, I might add. That was a good Really, really awesome. That was awesome. So um, I want to start off, I want to ask you about, uh, AJ, how did you get in here? Um, I want to start off asking you about being a Klingon in the motion picture. How, How long did it take to get into that makeup? Well, um, probably half hour, 45 minutes, you know, you're asking me something that happened uh, a few years ago. And <laughs> I have played, I've played so much Star Trek over the years. I, um, you know, I've had uh different time for, I think my longest time was like five hours to get in a, a certain makeup. But I think Klingons were in the neighborhood of a half hour to 45 minutes to put on that forehead. And, and of course, getting in the uh, costume uh, took a little bit of effort. Yeah, I bet you. I bet you that it did. What, what was it? What was it like to work on 
Star Trek the motion picture to, when they brought everybody back together for the first time since the show was canceled? Well, I was completely uh, blindsided by the fact that it was so important. I thought it was going to be, you know, a reunion of the crew that, you know, of the cast that did uh, Star Trek. You're all going to do a single movie that would be like a reunion. Everybody gets together and it would be great. But the the real content of Star Trek was the TV show. So I didn't put a whole lot of, um, I didn't think about it being classic except for the fact that everybody wanted a Star Trek film and they had to get uh, Star Wars involved in, to where they actually didn't get to bring out Star Trek until after Star Wars, which, uh, you know, I'm sure you were aware that it was kind of, everybody waited for Star Trek and it just never came out until after Star Wars was already on the road. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. Now, um, when you were when you were in... I don't want to ask you too much because I want to leave some, some things for Eric and Charles if they have a question. Um, but when you were in the, in the Star Trek, the motion picture and the Klingon sequence in the beginning of the movie, obviously, um, did you actually speak Klingon? Yes. I said something like, wish cha, hazara. I'm not sure if that's correct, but it's similar to it. <laughs> and I was told to go to tactical. That's right. You went over and you you fired some torpedoes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's it. the words were supposed to mean you know go go to tactical, and then maybe fire. I'm not sure. It's been a long time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was pretty. That was awesome. And uh, Leslie, can you hear me? Oh yeah. Hi. Yep. I wasn't sure if you picked up the line. Yeah, it's taken me a little while to get everything back lined up again from our, our little glitch, but everything's back to normal now. Can Leslie you really, uh, Between you Tom and myself, uh, we we created that, that picture of Tom dressed up as Spock and, you know, where where you could see the mirror or you could see the other side of his head in the mirror. Now, is it okay if I post that on our Facebook page, Leslie? It's fine with me. You, uh, if it's fine with Tom. Well, I don't necessarily want people to get in use it if you can, you know, because uh, uh, would they be able to take it off the website or the Facebook? I, 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 yeah, they can probably cut and paste it. All right. Well. Uh, let's talk about that in a little while. That's not important right now. Uh, the thing that was really interesting, I can interject here for a second, is that I was on the show and it was going to be Star Trek and it was important. And we knew that you didn't take cameras on the set. You weren't allowed to do, I mean, that would be uh, ridiculous to try to take a picture because you might get fired. Leslie walks into the dressing room and says, let's get a quick picture. I said, no, we can't take a picture. Are you kidding me? Yeah, stand right there. Well, I was in my little trailer. The dressing room that had a mirror, and I'm already ready to go. And she says, "Yes, we'll take this." And if it hadn't been for Leslie, I would never have that picture. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we love Leslie. <laughs> Leslie always was this. We used, uh, you know, she was. She would always get things. I mean, some people called her the the scrounge, the the 
what would we call you? You were the one that made everything happen. You know, if we had to get something or we needed something, we always said, well, ask Leslie. She'll be able to do it. <laughs> it's amazing what, what Leslie can do. <laughs> I know. She's incredible. That's why we call her you know, the Leslie the Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Eric, did you have a question you wanted to ask Tom while we have him on the line with us? Well, I just thought it was interesting. You know, last week we talked about Star Trek V, and I didn't realize until last week that uh, you were the man in the rock monster suit, too, that it originally got cut from the movie and then has since been restored in some of the director's cuts and whatnot. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. I did the rock monster, and it was quite an experience. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I didn't even know uh, – what had happened I'd done some other I did another one uh, A couple other stunts uh, In the battle At the village uh, Where guys got shot And stuff I did a couple of those So I was in the film But my big deal Was to be the rock monster And it was a long And kind of neat thing To put together And we did some neat shots And then all of a sudden They said they didn't like it And I never understood I thought it would be Kind of cool To have a rock monster But they thought It would be too physical For the entity Or something well, ultimately, I like that version of the film just a little bit better, and we've talked about it a little bit on the show. So uh, nicely done in that role. And just it's so exciting to to get a chance to talk to you just with all the roles you've played. I don't know if, if folks necessarily know or not, but I, there's speculation that you may have played more uh, aliens than anybody else in Star Trek. Uh, we're talking all kinds of well, major I, ones. We're talking some of the minor ones. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that it's, it's possible. I did 20 years. Uh, I did the feature, and then I did four more features as well as doing Deep Space Nine, uh, oh, Next Generation Deep Space Nine, Voyager Enterprise. So I did a lot of them. I couldn't play a Ferengi, but I certainly did uh, all the major ones. And even the, uh, when they created the Klingons for Star Trek, I happened to be there for them to use for the model for the wardrobe, even. So they kind of, I was about the right size, and they used me for a model there to set it up. And through the years, I had so many costumes that, um, as an example, when they did Nemesis and, and they need some Raymonds, they pulled out the costumes they were going to use and they had put them together with other things and my name was in it so they just called me <laughs> so I, I even got a job because my name was in a costume sometimes just uh you know labeling things properly is uh provides a little bit of uh foot in the door so <laughs> good job keeping yeah. your name in your clothes just like mom taught right <laughs> well, uh, you know i think yeah. that that i think that crossed over to uh to uh Enterprise uh, Zindis, they took parts of the Nemesis costume and made a Zindi. And they saw my name in it, too. Yeah, what a wow. way to get to get some work. But uh, but it's just so exciting to talk to you. So, yeah, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, back to you, Jim. Yeah, I, I did not know that you actually, that you were a Zindi as well. I think that's really cool. Actually. Oh, I've been lost. Lots of characters. Lots of Gemma stuff. Gemma Gardens, Klingons. Yeah. Nausicaa. How did you, how did you first get involved in uh, 
in Star Trek, Tom. How did you land your first role on Star Trek? Well, first, take a look at that picture. I was a young stunt guy just starting out and getting into it, and they were going to do the part and uh, the movie, and they were going to get a double for Spock, and a couple people knew me, and one stunt guy recommended me, and another guy, someone else called, so I went into to audition, and I think I had such a good look for Spock that they said, yeah, we'll use him. And, uh, you know, so long ago, what the exact thing is, I just, if you look at the picture, you can see that I had the cheekbones, and I looked pretty much like Nimoy. Yeah, I, I yeah, Leslie sent that to me. That that is really that is awesome. Now, when you were, you actually you worked with Mark Leonard. Mark Leonard was was the Klingon captain in that sequence right. as well. So the two of you were were there. What, what, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to work with 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 Mark Leonard? Well, I was brand new, and he's been around, and he was a good actor, of course very personal guy. We didn't have a lot of time to talk. I don't recall any, we didn't sit around and talk to each other, but on the set and while we're getting ready to do stuff, uh, he was great. Uh, I think I may have uh, been repositioned on the, on the right side and did moved or something like that. And he, he was accommodating. I don't know. I, 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 it wasn't a big scene, so I didn't have a lot of time with him, but um, I remember him being a pretty cool guy. Yeah, I I I worked with him at a convention before, and he was he was a gentleman all the way, definitely. Right. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, Charles, did you have any questions you wanted to ask Tom? Yes, uh, Tom. We've seen several people actually do this character, but how they decide to set up people? How they decide to set up people floating around? the ship and dock and the uh, space station. How did like they do it? poor unlucky person flying away as the space station is getting disintegrated. Right. Did you, you know, if you go to, if you go to the motion picture on Google, they show several things. One of the things they talk about is Trumbull creating this scene in the dock and one of the things he wanted to do is put a workman in space that could float upside down and do a little front flip and wave goodbye so they wanted to create that and they and, and when they talk about it they say well we wanted to get a stuntman to do that well i was a stuntman and what they did was got uh, get a titan crane and they put a pole about a two inch pole on it and they put a rotator attachment on the end, which is specially made to fit into a harness they created for me. So I was like a popsicle on a stick. And they'd rotate that thing any way they want to. So when I'm out in space, they had it all uh, blue screened. And you wouldn't see the arm. You just saw me, of course. And I had three attachments, one on each side and one on the back. And they had the one on the side when I was doing the front flip saying goodbye. And that was kind of cool. I even have some photos, behind-the-scene photos of me putting that rotator on and standing there with Trumbull. Uh, it was kind of cool. I had no idea how iconic it was going to be at the time. But they had it all mechanically figured out. So they had great control over any motion I was going to do. Oh, yeah, it's interesting to see where they take stunts with those. If you look, it's like, oh, that's just somebody floating there. No, that's a stunt. It's like... Yeah. Stacy Coco uh, says I, sometimes they're just 
points where you're an actor, you're an actor, and all of a sudden, well, you're a stunt man too. You're going to be doing some stunts, like okay. There was another. There was another scene where. There's another scene where uh, Shatner is out coming back from Vjor and he's unconscious and he slightly turns around. And at that time, I'm wearing his spacesuit, being Spock. And they wanted that shot right away, so they says, "Just get in the suit. We're only seeing you from behind, so don't worry about the makeup. Just do it." And I did, and it's sure. <laughs> As you, as you can imagine, they turn the camera around. If you look at that one instant, you'll see my face without Spock ears. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to check that out. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go and watch that now and see if I can that, pause that. that is the right moment. That is not the original suit they made either. They had another suit. I don't know if you've heard about the making of. But uh, they had a neoprene suit, like wetsuit material that they had first created for the for the spacesuits, and they were so uncomfortable. They were just horrible, and uh, they were tight over the shoulder. They 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 hit a, a a point on your neck that was like a trigger point. It, could, it made your arm sore, and everyone was tough on this thing. And we used it as much as we could, getting prepared for the film, and we did a shot. Uh, where we were floating in space to get a look at this, and it was really tough. And we told them about this. Nobody, nobody worried about it. It's going to be okay. Leonard put on the suit, and he wore it for a few minutes and says, nope, this is not going to work. So they rebuilt the suit. Thank you very much, Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I guess uh, – we're pretty much at the end of our time, Tom, so I want to say thank you so much for hanging out with us and sharing some stories about Star okay. Trek, the motion picture. And, of course, thank you to Leslie for uh, making this possible. Thank you so much, Leslie. Yeah, she's the reason I'm here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Leslie's still around. Well, thank you, Leslie. She, thank you, she Leslie. She gets everything done, right? She does, Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Tom. We really appreciate it. Thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, you guys have a good one. Talk to you another Bye-bye. time. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Okay, guys, we're talking about Star Trek, the motion picture, and our phone number here is 646-668-2433, and we just talked to Tom Morga, a compliment of the one and only Leslie Hoffman, and I believe if I can get the phone to work here, uh, we have another alumni from Star Trek, the motion picture, on with us. Uh, Philo, can you hear me? Yes, I certainly can. <laughs> Excellent. I believe this is the second time well that we have talked with you about Star Trek, the motion picture. Do you know Tom Morga? That's right. Uh, no, I, I didn't come into contact with any of the actors or stunt people during the uh, shoot. Uh, unless they came to our small soundstage in, um, uh, I think it was on uh, Glencoe Avenue in Marina Del Rey. And I, I saw them shoot a bit of the wire work uh, there. Yeah, that that was that was actually uh, very interesting to talk with Tom. But um, So we're going to talk with you now. Tom, Tom was a stunt person, but you actually were one of the artists that actually brought a lot of what we saw in Star Trek, the motion picture, to life and put it on the screen. So 
What are some of the iconic scenes that you were most responsible for in Star Trek, the motion picture? Oh, well, uh, we worked as a team, uh, not individually, of course. So um, my team uh, was responsible for the look of the clouds that were generated by Beecher. Um Any, any and all of the um, electrical discharges of all kinds that were emanating from Beecher. And um, they were done in different ways, of course. Um, we we hand-animated a lot of the bolts, um, but we also had a Tesla coil footage. And um, that was mostly shot at John Dykstra's facility, so that had nothing to do with us, but it was combined with our footage later. Um, we also did the um, sequence where they um, Becker and Ilya meld together and create a new life form into the film. And that was that was actually easier achieved. It was just a logistic thing where you had to know, you know, what you were doing with exposure and so on. And it was actually static art that was designed to appear to be wrapping around them when it was pulled over itself and backlit on the animation stand. So um, they called them slot gags. So those were probably the easiest to work out. Everything else took a lot of painstaking drawing and, um, you know, uh, matchup work. So, and I, I we're going to talk a little bit later about this, but um, Star Trek: The Motion Picture was one of the most at the time was one of the most expensive movies that Paramount had produced, and I think part of that reason is that today a lot of that stuff would be done with CGI effects, but you didn't have CGI right back then. You as no, an artist, not. you guys had to not. compose. Each and every single frame had to be handcrafted by you and your team of artists. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but the little video monitors on board the Klingon ship and the space station and on the Enterprise uh, were not computers. <laughs> they were rear projection screens that um, if we were lucky enough to get the shots, the little animation pieces that were going to be projected in there done in time, then they were photographed right along with the actors on the set. They're reprojected into where they're supposed to appear. However, most of what we did um, got finished late because we were down to the wire on everything. So the little films that were um, uh, supposed to be there, we had the actors just um, perform in front of little blue screens that were in those spots. And in post-production, they, they were finally able to put our little animations in there. But we, we didn't have uh, such a thing as computer monitors then. You have to remember, it's 1979. And we didn't even have uh, home computers until, um, you know, a lot of them until 1989, uh, uh, a decade later. So Wow. Uh, so you can, you can tell which which uh, films were put in in post because they have a thick black line around them. There was no getting around those matte lines in those days. <laughs> no, wow. Now, um, were you involved in the director's cut at all? Uh, they, they, they made a lot of um, special effects and cut a lot. Did you work on that at all? Uh, no, but uh, several of my friends uh, uh, went in and, and did that, especially uh, Darren Docterman, who spearheaded the new digital things. Um, I believe he was the one who designed the digital enterprise. And I, I defy people to tell them apart from the model. It's just amazing what they did. Um, 
Plus, you know, they they uh, they mostly enhanced what we had done. Uh, they kept all our animation. Bless them. Um, they mostly enhanced things that uh, we weren't we didn't have time to do, like the nacelles showing outside the window of the um, uh, officers' lounge. You know, out the back of the ship. There, uh, they they actually put the nacelles in there, <laughs> and they were rock steady in the in the new version. Uh, plus, they added film grain so that it would not stand out as being something that was added, uh, but instead shot in 1979 with the original footage. So it was it was amazing what they did, and I'm thrilled to hear it's it's finally going to come out um, because they've been holding on to the assets all this time, and uh, Paramount didn't seem to have any interest in it until recently. So I'm I'm thrilled. It's going to be great. I I am I am as well. Now, did you work? One of my favorite things about the motion picture is something that we only saw in the motion picture, and that was the warp effect. Did you work on on that right. creating that rainbow warp effect at all? No, that was uh, Robert Swarth who designed that shot. He was one of my bosses, as well as Doug Trumbull and um, uh, John Kimball, and. Uh, Robert used a um, uh, optical printer to do that effect. I'm not exactly sure how it worked technically, but he he did some rotoscoping of uh, the edge of what he wanted to streak, and then it would um, be run through the optical printer in some way that it would create this uh, funnel of you know kinetic lighting effects and uh, blur the characters out. Um, they did do um, uh, redubbing of the characters, obviously, because it was straight-ahead footage. So that, that slowed-down speech, they actually came in and uh, just looped their dialogue over. You know, targeting asteroids. <laughs> you know, those yeah. but, I, I uh, just, it I love that effect. And, um, what, what helped it was, uh, was just like they had done on the show, you know, the original series, they they moved the camera and had everyone stagger a certain way to to sell the illusion even further. So yeah, <laughs> yeah that that I I think that the Star Trek the motion picture is is uh, overlooked by a lot of fans and and not appreciated for the for the work of art that it really really is. And uh, Eric, did you have, have any questions for Philo? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, one of the things that has always struck me about Star Trek motion picture is um, it, it's clear that it came in a certain time uh, in history, you know, a decade after, I'll say, 2001, which I think right. seems to really have heavily influenced the, um, you know, the effects and some of the long shots that they take, the pacing of right. the movie, which, which well, I personally, the, the, the I hard- love. Yeah, but the hardcore science fiction aspect, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is. It's the hard sci-fi part of it. And and right. I like that quite a bit. And I think I think it's because it actually makes you feel like you're in space. It actually puts you in the scene just a little bit more than I think you are in a lot of more modern sci-fis where they're just kind of like, okay, quick effect, quick effect, and then long scene where there's just dialogue in a room, you know? <laughs> right. I don't. I don't, right. I don't personally mind the fact that it takes 
four minutes or over four minutes to actually fly by the Enterprise in this movie. Or I don't have a problem with the fact that yeah. it takes ten minutes for the ship to even reach Viger once they start getting there, you know. So what was that right. like kind of setting up for different types of shots than you would normally get in a sci-fi movie? Well, let me say that uh, I was, since it began, a huge fan of 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I was fascinated with Doug Trumbull and, and everything he had done since, um, including his own film, uh, Silent Running, and uh, just read up all I could about him, and I had never dreamed I'd be working with him on <laughs> a movie in my lifetime, uh-huh. and there uh-huh. I was, you know, he was... Less than six oh, inches no. from me someday. So, um, just an amazing thing. And uh, he, he and I talked about that at one point. I said, this seems to be more like 2001 in, in its realism of space than the original show, which was more of an action adventure, you know, kind of spent more time really inside the ship than they did showing space or anything else outside. So, um, completely on board and I was just um, I was in Star Trek heaven you know the new uh-huh. Star Trek <laughs> yeah well it's but interesting the, the because it's just they really make, some... uh, those ships yeah the yeah. things they did to make those ships look enormous too were very clever like the, the, the dental mirrors that they used uh, in a tripod and angled up at the ship um, that long flyover um, in dry dock which was meant to reintroduce people to the Enterprise the way it looked now. And um, uh-huh. I think it's a great sequence, but that thing just looks like a um, um, a ship. In, or, um, what am I trying to say? An ocean liner in space. It looks uh-huh. like because of the dappled light effect they were able to get off bouncing the light, the main light off of those mirrors and up at the model, making lots of hundreds of little dappled light effects. Across the uh, the ship, it's just just amazing what uh, the innovation that they did. Well, it is uh, interesting that you should bring up the the concept of scale because I do think that this movie deals with that in a really really cool way. I mean, as the ship is is heading, particularly when they meet up with Viger, right? They're heading to meet Viger. Right. They, they have already established in the movie that this whole cloud is something like 82 AUs in diameter. So that's, I mean, that's right. enormous. That's like way, way bigger than they could even really reasonably show on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they give you these shots like a little tiny, tiny Enterprise kind of flying across a giant cloud or in the end when they finally meet up with Viger, and the ship is kind of, I'll say the ship is sort of stationary and they sort of step off the hull and start walking towards right. um, what the scale is amazing, right? There's, there's all these different effects yeah. going on at the same time. So I just have always really, really appreciated that about this movie. Oh, yes, yes. And um, that, that has all been enhanced now. The, the, um, the staircase that there are, staircase of crystals, I guess you could call it, that forms um, from Beedra to the Enterprise, the edge of the saucer there has been digitally added now, but they did it in such a way that it looked like it was animated in 1979 by us. So I, I thought that was really terrific. That was a shot we weren't able to do back then, of course. So, 
Well, it's so cool that you can go back and sort of touch up some of these things and make them more into the vision that everybody wanted to have them because everybody – and it's right. nice also, I'll say, that people aren't scared to do that. Uh, I think Star Trek can be seen as such a precious little jewel sometimes by many folks, and they're, they're hesitant to really, <laughs> you know, touch that jewel yeah. at all. And yet every single time they have, every single time they redesign the Klingons or every single time they gave us a cool new ship or a cool new effect – it's always in the end right. turned out to enhance the whole franchise. And I think Star Trek, the motion picture really did its due diligence doing that exact same thing. Right. Well, they, they wanted to, the characters, what's new? What, what's happening to you now? Kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And that includes mm-hmm. the ship itself. So yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> well, and you get the real sense of time passing too. I mean, not only do they mention that it's been two and a half years since Kirk's five-year mission, but they totally changed the uniforms, the the technology mm-hmm. on the inside of the ship. It like it's amazing to me that this was made in 1979 because some of that technology looks really cool. Well, it it, it hasn't been outdated really, you know. No. The, the uh, no. The kind of molded quality of of the panels and um, the stations and things. Yeah. The molded quality, they and I'll say like that there, there's just a left there's just enough left un. Uh, unsaid to make you kind of wonder how all the technology works or what all the readouts actually mean too, which I like, right. you know, it's almost mm-hmm. by explaining right. less, you, you give people more. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and um, uh, I, I love the addition of a couple of scenes in particular in the new edition. And that is uh, um, Deidre emerging from the cloud as it gets closer to earth. Uh, something we we just couldn't do. The the, the model existed, but it was sixty feet long. And that's how we achieved all the flyovers that was shot at Dykstra's place. And um, wow. they literally flew over the model with a um, uh, a Lumo crane. And it, the film was background in the camera, and they did several passes uh, on the latent image until they had about fourteen layers built up of the real smoke being dumped on a um, laser beam that was curved over the model. And um, it just made this immense tunnel of smoke. It was very kinetic and, and eerie and wonderful to look at when it was all finished. Uh, and that was all done at Dykstra's facility uh, near the Van Nuys airport. So um, wow. they also made a three inch uh, long enterprise. <laughs> Dykstra showed it to me when I was visiting there one day. And, so uh, that's a three-inch enterprise in a sixty-foot model that we see, huh? Yeah, that was um, uh, the, the shot I can remember in particular is, is um, looking down on the beacher uh, uh, as they cross over um, a very active spot where you see the electricity crawling around. Mm-hmm. You see the enterprise; it's so dinky, just flying over that spot. Um, the the other the other scene was uh, one that. Um, kind of goes along with Kirk from the original show. He always had a plan B when he went into a situation. So when they're at the V'ger and he thinks things are going to go south, he calls Scotty uh, on the communicator and he says, uh, I want you to instigate the um, self-destruct on my order. Things go south. And um, the yeoman says, sir, we'll... Will that do it? Will that take the V'ger out? He says, I, Lassie, when that much matter and antimatter comes together, she'll go. Yep. 
So they put that back in, and I said, wait a minute, I don't remember that scene, but it explains a lot. Um, it's oh. in keeping with Kirk. You know, I thought that was wonderful. So it's back in now, and um, I can't wait for everyone to see it uh, a few months from now. Uh-huh. <laughs> that sounds so cool. I love that. Kirk yeah. actually has, he has another moment with Scotty earlier in the film where he gives him that accent, too, that Scottish accent. So they preserve that little tiny bit. Right. I love I love them bringing that thing back in. So. But well, he never, such, when you think about it, he never did go into a situation without some other plan. And um, it's the first version made it seem like he just went in there blindly, which is something he would never do. So, well, and it all made we, sense. And we definitely. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, when we may get deeper into this conversation a little bit later here, but I, I see this sure. movie as a real series of, um, of Kirk kind of messing up a bunch of times and being sorry for yeah. what he's done, but he's always got the backup yeah. plan, right? So, <laughs> especially, especially with Decker, Decker got done dirt, I think. <laughs> oh, he did, and I love Decker in this movie. I love like the. Well, anyway, yeah. we'll get into I love the scene where Bones kind of tells Kirk yeah. off about the way he's treating Decker. That is just one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So, yeah. anyway, real real pleasure to talk to you about the effects and stuff. I want to give Charles a chance in case he's got yeah. anything to say, too. All right. Thank you. You're up, Charles. All right. Well, there's not much more I can add to it, but I will make the comments you started to mention. We've had the original movie, we've got the director's cut, and now we're getting the updated cut. So what do you, th- what do you think, and what do you maybe you looking forward to them doing to the new 4K version? Oh, to the, uh, to the new uh, format? Yes. Yes. Oh, I think it's great. Um I mean, it looked great uh, back in 2001. Uh, uh, I thought it was pretty, pretty high res and hot stuff. I, I understand the sound is going to be redone uh, from the original tracks, so that's that's another bonus because they worked very hard on uh, achieving the sound effects for the film. Um, um, I don't know if they were even nominated for that uh, Academy Award time. But um, I'm looking forward to seeing an ultra-pristine copy of this all, all cleaned up. Yeah, I, I am, I'm excited to see it, too. It's going to be great. Right. Well, Philo, um, and, and, and we're pretty, especially we're pretty much... Jerry Goldsmith's music again. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> after, after I did Star Trek, I went right on to Secret of Nim, and uh, he was our composer on that as well. Yeah, I, I I personally think Star Trek the Motion Picture is is one of the best soundtracks uh, of of any movie. I think well, it's, it's incredible. It's very evocative. I mean, you hear the Klingon theme and you say, "Okay, Klingon," you know, and the Enterprise theme, uh, which was used again for uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation as their main title. That's right. Yeah. That's right, it yeah. was. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Philo, we have to we have to let you go. We've we've used up all all of our time. <laughs> so, okay. I want to say thank you, thank you so much for um, hanging out and sharing some of your 
memories and stories with us about Star Trek, the motion picture. We really appreciate it. Oh, certainly. It was nice to talk to you again after all this time. I know. It's yeah. been, what was it? Uh, it was, what, Trek Conderoga a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 2018 or 19, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 2018, it was, I believe. It was a, yeah, yeah. It was a while ago. But um, anyways, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for uh, coming back yeah, on and sharing stories it. with us about Star Trek: The Motion Picture. And uh, maybe when they when they do release the the Ultra 4K edition, um, if you'd like to, we can have you back on and and we can talk about some of the improvements and some of the differences to okay. make the movie. Sound good? That'd be great. Okay, yes. consider it a date. Thank you very much, Philo. You have a great night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, guys, we got we got through it. Technical difficulties aside, I think we did a really good job pulling everything together on the fly, but we're not done yet. Um, we're going to be talking about Star Trek The Motion Picture amongst ourselves right now. But first, I want to play the trailer for you guys, just in case you forgot. Maybe. More technical difficulties. Oh, there we go. Travel forward with us. 300 years into the future. To confront the greatest mystery ever to threaten mankind. We are aboard a huge starship called the Enterprise. This is the return of Captain Kirk. An alien object of unbelievable destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. Mr. Spock. I offer my services as science officer. Dr. McCoy. Scotty. And joining them on their mission, Commander Will Decker and Navigator Ilea. I'm sorry. That you left Delta Four? Or that you didn't even say goodbye? like they maybe didn't even know exactly what was in the film. I mean, they don't exactly travel through time. 
they travel through space. It definitely sounded like one of those generic trailers that you kind of got as a as a preview way before. Maybe even the film was even finished. Yeah, I was I was looking. I was trying to find an actual trailer, but there nothing exists for Star Trek the motion picture as far as an actual trailer. All the trailers for the motion picture are generic, like that one. Um, except well, for the special like our, edition. Yeah, and it's like one of our guests was saying, remember that there was, I mean, it's so funny when we review these movies, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years after they were put out, because, uh, you know, there was a big hubbub about it being developed around the same time as Star Wars. And there were deals made to make sure that it came out after Star Wars. And, you know, we talked... Uh, last week about how some of the stock sounds and whatnot from Star Wars sometimes make their way into Star Trek movies. But, um, but you know, it was, it was kind of a big deal uh, that it had to be put off. So it, it doesn't surprise me actually that it wasn't super well advertised um, and promoted the way that we would see like a Marvel movie done these days where you literally well, can't get away from it. Right. Well, the thing is they were, at one point, talking about doing a TV show, they were going to do Phase 2, and then when Star Wars came out, they realized the TV show wouldn't work out as well. They really needed to do a movie. And sure if they really could place themselves in the movie quite yet. Once they got to 2, they got a little more feel of how to promote it. And I'm not sure they even realized how to promote this one. No, I, I think you're right. They don't. They didn't know what they had. So let's let's share some uh, talk a little bit about some of the the facts for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. So Star Trek: The Motion Picture opened in the United States and Canada on December seventh, nineteen seventy nine, and set a box office record for highest opening weekend gross. The film beat the three-day weekend record set by Superman in 1978 and the opening weekend gross of the 1978 reissue of Star Wars. So there you have it. Star Trek beat Superman and Star Wars. And I just want to point something out for listeners that that are younger. Uh, When they say reissue of Star Wars, you have to keep in mind that back in 1978, the only way to see Star Wars was at the movie theater. There was no VHS, there was no DVDs, there was no YouTube. There was none of none of this existed. And so when a movie and came at, out, at this time, and at this yep. time, that kind of movie was not released on television. Right. So if you wanted to see Star Wars. There was only one way to do it. You went to the movies. So for Star Trek, the motion picture to beat out Star Wars is quite an amazing feat, especially in 1978 when Star Wars was at the height of its popularity. So I just wanted to point that out to a lot of listeners who might not be aware of that. Um, The motion picture earned $17 million within a week making it the fifth-highest-grossing film of 1979 overall. The film sold the most tickets of any film in the franchise history until Star Trek 2009, and it remains the highest-grossing film of the franchise 
worldwide with adjusted for inflation. Star Trek The Motion Picture was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Art Director for Harold Michelson and Joseph R. Jennings, Leon Harris, John Valone, and Linda DeSino. Best Visual Effects and Best Original Score. To coincide with the film's release, Pocketbooks released a novelization written by Gene Roddenberry, the only Star Trek novel Roddenberry wrote. The book adds backstory and elements that did not appear in the movie. The novel also has a different opening scene to introduce Viger and Kirk and concentrates sections on Kirk's struggle with his confidence in taking command of the Enterprise again and expands on the Ilea-Decker relationship. I, I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute. Paramount Home Entertainment released the film on VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, and Videodisc. Yes, you heard me right. Betamax and Laserdisc, both formats that I own Star Trek on. That's how old I am. In 1980, in its original theatrical version, in 1983, an extended cut premiered on ABC television that added roughly 12 minutes to the film. Actually, there's three versions of Star Trek The Motion Picture. There's the original theatrical cut. There is the ABC television special longer version. And now there's the director's cut. So there's three versions of that film floating around out there. Paramount released a director's edition on film, on VHS, and DVD on November 6, 2001. Wise, who had considered the theatrical presentation of the film a rough cut, was given the opportunity to re-edit the film to be more consistent with the original vision. In addition to cuts and sun sequences, 90 new and redesigned computer-generated images were created. Care was taken that the effects meshed seamlessly with the old footage, the edition runs 136 minutes, about four minutes longer than the original. And that's something that you heard Philo talking about earlier. Uh, he was one of the original animation artists for Star Trek, the motion picture. And you heard him talk about how they went, took a lot of care to make sure that their new computer generated images didn't jump out and slap you in the face, that they meshed really well with what the original artist had hand drawn back in 1979, and they, they did an excellent job, I think. The director's edition was far better received by critics than the original 1979 release, with some considering the edit to have substantially turned the film into one of the series' best. The DVD journal's Mark Bourne said it showcased a brisker, more attractive version of the movie that was as good as it might have been in 1979, perhaps even better. The score of Star Trek The Motion Picture was predominantly written by Jerry Goldsmith, who later composed the scores for The Final Frontier, First Contract, Interaction, and Nemesis, as well as themes for the television series The Next Generation and Voyager. The soundtrack featuring the film's music was released by Columbia Records in 1979, together with the film debut as one of Goldsmith's best-selling scores. Sony released an expanded two-disc edition on the soundtrack, on November 10th, 1998. The score to Star Trek The Motion Picture went on to garner Goldsmith nominations for Oscars, Golden Globes, and Saturn Awards. It is often regarded as one of the composer's greatest scores and was also one of the American Film Institute's 250 top nominated films of American film scores. So that's quite impressive. And uh, Charles, 
What did our fans have to say about Star Trek The Motion Picture on our Facebook page? Well, Robert Carl Ka, colon the third, loved it, loved it the soundtrack. Just wish the soundtrack was available in MP3, giving it a 10. Alan McCree loves Star Trek, but they tried too hard with this movie. A four. Giving it a four. Alan Fajet Fan gave an eight. Brand Whitley, not a very good movie, especially compared with the rest, giving it a four. Richard North gives the movie a 7.5, gives the soundtrack a 10. Mezuz or, or Zek gave an eight for the director's touch. Top fan Brandon Garlis, it's a solid five. It was the first Star Trek movie, so I didn't have high expectations on its quality. However, every movie after it was a masterpiece. William Nicole gives it a nine. I give, I give it a nine. Great movie. Julianne Phillips gives it a six. But Jerry Goldsmith's score is a perfect ten. And Michael... Was in back in '79 when it first came out. All of us older fans that watched the original series was a ten for me. The original cast back on the screen once again was my dream. So overall, we got a fan score of seven point one, which is quite impressive, I think. And um, back to the novel, I, I I just finished reading the motion picture. Uh, about a month ago or so. And I, I want to say that usually I like to read the novels because it fill. we talked about this last week when we talked about Star Trek V. A lot of times the novels will fill in a lot of the backstory that, that wasn't in the movie for whatever the reason might be. Um, in this particular instance, though, this is one of the rare cases where I think the movie was better than the book. And one of those reasons is a lot of the iconic scenes in Star Trek, the motion picture are not in the book. And for instance, I think the opening sequence with the Klingon battle cruisers is one of the best opening sequences I've ever seen in any movie. Um, It's phenomenal. It's just, it pulls you right in. We see the new Klingons. We, we hear the Klingon language for the first time. We see the new Klingon battle cruisers. At this point, we realize, wow, Star Trek is real, and it's here, and it's in my face, and it's incredible. That scene is not in the book. The book starts with a completely different sequence with Captain Kirk on vacation. I think he's at the Pyramid of Giza or something, and he has some chip implanted in his brain, and Starfleet sends him a message which beams right into his brain and tells him what's going on, and the Klingons got destroyed, and blah, 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 blah. And he goes and he, he transports to some orbital space station. And the, the entire opening sequence is completely nothing like it was in the movie. And it just doesn't have the same feel, I think, as these massive battle cruisers getting destroyed. So in that instance, I think the book is a letdown. Another major scene that's not in the book, which is, I think, one of the highlights of the movie is Captain Kirk's fly around the Enterprise with Scotty. Um, Eric 
hinted at that earlier. That four-minute sequence, which which gets so much flack from so many people, I think is so necessary in the movie because it's like, look, the ship is big. It's huge, and we want to show it to you. And when Scotty flies around the Enterprise with Captain Kirk, it's just it's an incredible scene, and it's made to be seen on the big screen. That scene's not in the book yeah. either. Um, you know, Kirk, you know, flies around the Enterprise and, you know, lands in the shuttle. But all that that you see in the movie isn't in the book. It's just, you know, Scotty flies north around the Enterprise and under the side. It's like a paragraph or two in the book, whereas it's four minutes in the movie. So that wasn't, I, I left me wanting. But one of the biggest differences between the movie and the book, which was written by Gene Roddenberry, is that uh, Ilea, the Delton uh, navigator, who has an oath of celibacy on record, well, in the movie, it's never really, okay, so what? The Deltons are a bunch of horny people, and they, they just run around having sex all the time. I mean, it's never really um, explained too much what is going on with the Deltons and why they have an oath of celibacy and what it's all about. Well, Gene Roddenberry delves into that in the book quite deeply, actually, and, and to the point where the one scene where Ilea gets the headband and uh, Chapel says, well, well, Decker gave that to her. In the book, it's explained that when Decker gives her that, it, it, think of it as um, an engagement ring, okay? That's, that's a sign that, that they want to mate, and they mate for life, Deltons. And so Decker and Ilea never got an opportunity to mate because he got called away and took command of the Enterprise and theoretically left her standing on the altar. That whole backstory was really, it was hinted at, but not really, it wasn't really expanded upon in the movie why, you know, what was going on with them. Well, when, when Spock and McCoy and Kirk tell her, well, you need to work with this probe. It's the only way to get a hold of Ilea and get the information we need. Nurse Chapel says the probe was duplicated Ilea right down to every single molecule. There's even micro pumps for eye moisture and whatnot. Well, the Vedra probe is so perfect that Ilea is actually in the probe. And there's a scene in the book that's not in the movie. It's not even hinted at in the movie anywhere in the movie. But after, after uh, Decker leaves the holodeck, the rec hall, with the probe, they go back to his quarters and they do the nasty. And the Ilea probe, being a probe, doesn't really get what's going on. But because the Deltons are so uh, sensual, at that point, Ilea takes over the probe and the probe becomes Ilea. And she's back. She's real. She's alive again. And she's able to communicate all of this to um, to Decker and blah, blah, blah. And that's why at the end of the movie, he merges with her because he realizes that, that this is Ilea. She's really here and they can be together. And those are some of the big differences between the book and the movie. So, yeah, the, the book is quite different from the movie. And uh, I do agree with our fans, though. The soundtrack is a perfect 10. Perfect. I love the soundtrack. 
as Philo said, especially the Klingon music, which survived through every single movie. There's all the different Star Treks have a Klingon type theme. And one more thing I wanted to say before I, I turn it over to, um, to Eric is this Star Trek, the motion picture, I think is the most cinematic movie of all the Star Trek movies. And the reason why I say that is the enterprise, the bridge looks like the enterprise bridge, the hallways, the shuttle bay, everything in Star Trek, the motion picture has that big sweeping look like this is a starship, very similar to what we see on Star Trek discovery today. However, every Star Trek series and movie after the motion picture they were just reusing the sets for the TV show. And if you look at the bridge, um, you know, for Star Trek two, Star Trek three, any of the bridge sets for any of the movies we've seen, they are very small and compact and they look just like the TNG sets or the DS nine set. And they lost that, that huge sweeping cinematic feel that the Star Trek, the motion picture had. And that's not a knock. I'm just making that comparison that, you know, the Star Trek movies, they just started reusing sets and they weren't as cinematic as they tried to make the motion picture. So I'm, I, with the fans giving it a 7.1, you know, I have to go, I have to go with a 9.1 for Star Trek, the motion picture. How about you, Eric? Uh, Wow. There's so much to be said. And and the good news is that we just talked about this movie a little less than two years ago uh, when it was back in the theater. And I have to tell you, that was quite the experience. I know several of us were able to do it, go back to the big screen, actually see this thing on the big screen, sort of understand the the broad sweeping nature of the movie that Jim's talking about um, in terms of what it looks like on the big screen. So I don't want to belabor that. I'll just kind of, dig in very slightly into what I mentioned before, which was the pacing of this movie and um, sort of the, uh, the way that characters are brought back into it. So, you know, the movie starts, um, there's the great opening scene that we've talked about with the Klingons and that sort of thing. And you don't really realize it, but it isn't until 32 minutes into the movie that Bones actually joins the crew again. And then it is, not until 45 minutes into the movie that Spock actually rejoins the crew. Um, and so it's very interesting to me the, the willingness to kind of take your time with this movie, let it develop, um, let the story be a big one. And I agree with you, Jim. It is a little bit too bad that when they, when they went for the other movies that they kind of lost the look of the Enterprise because I have to say, the uniforms in this movie, the white uniform in particular that Admiral Kirk wears, my absolute favorite uniform of all time in all of Star Trek. I love that look of his particular uniform. I love the way it dresses down a little bit later uh, in the movie where he's got kind of the white T-shirt and everybody else kind of has the, the jumpsuits with the belts on. Those feel like a uniform that is a natural outgrowth of what we saw in the television series. So I just really, really like the uniforms. Um, we've talked about how much I like the music. I guess the other thing that I'll just kind of hit uh, in passing here, because we don't have too much time left, is that Decker is one of my favorite characters in this movie. Uh, I, I really like how at the beginning of the movie, he, he sets up a, 
a foil slash mirror for Kirk in that, uh, you know, it seems like he's being a little belligerent about the fact that Kirk has stormed onto his ship and sort of taken the thing over. And then, you know, after Kirk kind of denies it for a long time, he has a heart-to-heart with Bones, and Bones is the one that's like, listen, Jim, you're being an ass to this guy. You need to, like, straighten up a little bit. He's a very, very good captain, temporarily, you know, promoted down to commander while uh, while Captain Kirk is on the ship. But he's obviously, you know, very familiar with the Enterprise. He's the only one that knows all of the systems. He belays the order, right, during the, the time shift when they form the wormhole at the beginning of the movie because he realizes that shooting a phaser is probably going to destroy the ship, whereas shooting a photon torpedo isn't. Um, so he's there to point out the mistakes that Kirk is making along the way, which I think is really good because I think it's our first taste of what we get a lot of in the movies, which is Kirk going back and kind of, you know, rethinking some of the decisions that he's made, not, not unlike what we're getting with Picard uh, in the television series, just slightly less deep than that. So I love Decker. I love his relationship with Ilea. Um, I'm really glad the movie was not represented the way the book is because there's some stuff in the book that I really don't like specifically around their relationship. Um, So yeah, great movie. Um, In my lexicon of favorite Star Trek movies, it is definitely right up there. I'd say top four uh, for sure of the 10 movies, maybe top three for me. So I'll give this movie uh, a solid 8.5, agreeing that the music is at least a 9.5. (laughs) (laughs) and uh charles you get to bring up the caboose on star trek the motion picture all right well let me throw to you things i did get a chance to read the the audio version of the book a few months ago so it's been a little while since it's been on my mind but you did remind me of a few pieces one of the things that uh we get into is the war bubble and the reason that they can't fire phasers is because the phasers are intermixed in the war field. And so the phasers do not work. I think that was mentioned in the book, that that was one of the first things they wanted to do when getting the space dock is, no, it wasn't space dock. While they were on this mission is to have Scotty re- rewire that back out, plan with Scotty to try getting that fixed because that was a refit that was a mistake. Yeah, they actually, Decker mentions, I was just going to say that Decker mentions in this movie that it's because the power of the phasers has been connected directly to the warp uh, coil. So the phasers are like supposed to be way, way, way more powerful than they were on the TOS Enterprise, but they're necessarily connected to the warp coil. You're right, Charles. Yeah. And that they, that they actually wanted to get that patch rewired so they weren't actually going through there because that would cause so many problems. Jim talks about the formation of the, of the, of the, what the bridge looks like. And this is definitely a bridge we don't get to see ever again. Because we look at it, where is Fox Station uh, in the movie? Uh, yeah, he's like behind the captain. He's no longer kind of off he's to the side the on the right-hand Where side. Is he? Uh, uh, right. Normally yeah. he's on the right of the captain. 
Yeah. So he's got an entirely different station where Spock should be. You have several people standing at monitors and they're monitoring things. We've got a lot more people standing around on this ship, even though a few select people actually get seatbelt. Yeah, the little cur- the that come down over the chairs. And <laughs> the two, uh, a couple of people up front all have actual seat. The arm on the armrest fold in, and they actually get to wear seat belts. And the poor crew standing there watching monitors get to just get thrown around when the ship gets thrown around. You know, Charles, I think that that is a really cool observation because one of the other things I noticed about this movie, and I think that's part of it, is this kind of like tactile nature of some of the technology with it flipping down and flipping up. Like, did you notice that in this movie there are at least two instances where there's kind of like a vessel that ejects part of its drive system as it arrives where it's going? Um, One is uh, there's that scout uh, vessel or whatever it is that brings Spock to the ship and it sort of – ejects its warp drive system before it it docks. There's also when Spock goes with his suit uh, to go visit V'ger and his kind of like jetpack ejects off of the back of him. That's a very 1979 space shuttle, uh, you know, eject the rocket uh, boosters and the uh, fuel tank kind of uh, mentality. So the, the movie has kind of like elements of that worked into it. You don't, it wasn't until the later Star Wars movies that you even saw that in another bit of sci-fi where part of the drive system gets ejected from the ship when it gets there. So very cool. The chairs well, are the same one, way. They're very tactile. They snap down. And one of the things that I thought was a little dizzying was whereas the shuttle stopped, it ejected for poles. It actually moved itself to lock onto the ship. But it looked like it did a 180 flipping upside down and fully kind of moving in. It's like, okay, what about the poor passenger sitting in that in that shuttle and just spinning around trying to dock onto the ship? It's like, okay, next time, let's go ahead and just land in the shuttle bay instead of having to do somersaults to actually get uh, locked onto the ship. Something else I had I to look at they... kind of got yeah. yeah, why did they go in that side dock instead of going in through the shuttle bay? It's not something we ever see used again in Star Trek, as far as I know, that little no. side port where they go in. I think the only time they use those side ports is when you're on space station. Yeah, when you've got well, exactly no, when you're docked and you've got people no. walking across because you get the Star Trek Discovery, when they evacuated the Discovery to the Enterprise, they used those little docks to extend the bridges. Yes so that everybody could get from the Discovery to the Enterprise. Yeah. Well, I, I was yeah. saying prior to Discovery. I had never seen a ship back in that era use those ports. Oh, right. Okay, right, right. Yep. So, yes, Discovery did get to actually use them, but that's, they actually did use them, whereas rarely we ever did use them. But yeah, Jim the point is that they, they came the, up with all these they came up with all these really cool ideas for the movie that they never used again. <laughs> yeah. Right. When Jim talks about, we, we've got, we've got, we spend five minutes looking at the enterprise, but I think that was a 
I think that was a fan shout out to all of us who sat there and spent years watching reruns to actually get a great look at that ship. And let's see if we remember trivia. What, where did we see that dedication revisited? For for what? They, uh, going well, we just, through, looking at the ship, that five-minute view of the ship, where do we get to see that again? Well, we definitely see it in Encounter at Farpoint when they drive up to the no. uh, Enterprise D. Okay, well, that's true. true. More recent. About, Charles? <laughs> More recent. Oh, on, on uh, Lower Decks. Lower Decks. When they come in, they backtrack, and they come in to seeing the ship. And that's, I think, a direct shout-out to that scene. Is that, oh, yeah, let's, let's kind of visit the Cerritos, just like the Enterprise got visited. I think that was a great shout-out to the movie, by the way they came in and looked at the ship. One other thing that kind of confused me, and I had to look it up, during the movie to understand it. Though the belt buckles kind of threw me off. They, I think, were a little too much on the uniform. How did you tell different departments? How were you, see if anybody else, how were you able to tell what department people were in? The color there. Well, they had a, um, there was a, a patch with a symbol inside of it. Well, it's the, it's the color of the patch. Like Spock, and actually the colors are all different because Spock's wearing a red patch, which I don't know if that means science is supposed to be red in the motion picture, but this is red. All right. You look on it, there. You look on it, and you'll find online it's the color of the badge behind the Delta to which department they were in. Yeah. Because they sometimes had common uniforms, but it all depending on what color the badge itself was, division they were representing. So what would you score it overall, Charles? Score uh, 1 to 10. I think I'll put it around an 8. Yes, this was very. This was very cinematic. This wasn't the shooting, shoot 'em up. Go after the bad guys that we're used to from Star Trek. But I think this was a little more towards the 2001 visual of Star Trek. And I agree up there that the soundtrack is definitely a ten. So guys, we're actually out of time uh, again. <laughs> I want to apologize for the hiccup that we had at the beginning. This is live, and, you know, if it's not AJ running around with a headset, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff can happen. So I apologize for that, and uh, I hope it wasn't too much of an inconvenience. I want to say thank you to Leslie Hoffman for hooking us up with Tom Morga. Um, We got to hear from Tom uh, at the top of the second part two of the show. As I said, Tom Morga was a stuntman. And uh, he was the Klingon first officer. Uh, he was Mr. Spock's stunt double. He was the twirly guy in, in space stock, as well as a myriad of other aliens and stunts throughout all the different iterations of Star Trek. So I want to say thank you to Leslie for 
hooking us up with Tom, and thank you to Tom for coming on the show tonight. I also want to say thank you to Philo Bernhardt, who was a visual effects artist in Star Trek The Motion Picture. And uh, he was on with us just a little while ago, and we're looking forward to seeing Star Trek finally come out in four full 4K. So thank you so much for Philo for hanging out with us. I want to say thank you to Eric for hanging out and truck talking with us tonight. Thank you, Eric. Sure, you bet, Jim. I definitely want to say thank you to Charles for hanging out and truck talking with us tonight. Thank you, Charles. You're very welcome. Very interesting show, even with the mishap. Yeah, we had some hiccups, but we got through it, and that's the important part. And I apologize to Chris because I don't think this one's going to be editable. But it is what it is. And, of course, I want to let you guys know that next week we're going to be talking about Star Trek First Contact. So if you're a fan of First Contact, you want to be with us next week. And as I said earlier, on the 22nd, which is not next Thursday, but the following Thursday, we're going to have Jeremy Roberts, who played Dimitri Beltane in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and Star Trek Voyager Flashback. He's going to be on to talk with us a little bit about his involvement in Star Trek. We're also going to have five copies of Star Trek Discovery Season 3 to give away to five lucky fans. So you can win it before you can buy it. That doesn't come available until the 29th. We're going to have some available on the 22nd to give away. But you have to be listening live, and you have to call in. So you can call, you can ask a question, and you can win a copy of Star Trek Discovery Season 3 on DVD. So what more can you ask for? The number is 646-668-2433. Put it in speed dial. Give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You guys can find us on Facebook at Truck Talking and Beyond. Make sure you visit us at Blog Talk Radio backslash Trek Talking. You can go there, like and follow us there. You'll never miss a show. Even if we have a hiccup like this, you'll still be notified of the show. So thank you so much for listening. I'm your most excellent host, Uncle Jim, and I want to say thank you to everybody for hanging out with us tonight, and I want to say stay safe, be good to each other, and hailing frequencies are closed. Good night, everybody. Live long and prosper. Let's see what's out there.